All right, so John Knox was born in the year 1514. He was born in a small town in Scotland called Haddington. And at that time, there were only 1,500 residents. You know, I call that town small because in Arlington alone, there's over 200,000 residents. So just imagine being in that little teeny, teeny small town, probably seeing maybe, you know, going a week without seeing anyone, right? So small. Knox's parents, whose names were Sinclair and William, they both were devout Catholics. His, his mom died shortly after his birth. Her cause of death was unknown, but his father, William, most likely died in the war. So, John Knox was raised by his older brother, William. And we don't have too many details about Knox's childhood other than, that, other than what we just went over. Now, what I will say is that throughout Knox's life, we can see that God had his hand on him, preparing him to be the father of the Scottish Reformation. Now, one thing that should be an encouragement for us all is that God raises up insignificant people to do big tasks. All of the gifted people throughout church history were at one point in time inexperienced people. But God worked through them. So now in 1529, Knox enrolled in the University of St. Andrews. And while there, he studied under well-known theologian, John Major. And Knox was about 15 years old at Golden College. And he would go on to graduate with his master's degree in 1536. So at 22 years old, John Knox had already graduated college with his master's degree. And he's pretty much already started, started his life. He's, he was well ahead of his time. Right? And then after that, he became ordained as a priest for the Catholic Church. And he became a notary for the Catholic Church, and he was an assistant professor. You know, being a notary today isn't that much of a big deal, right? But he was a notary for the Catholic Church in Scotland. At that time, the Catholic Church in Scotland owned more than half the real estate. So you can see how that made Knox's job important and sought after. And kind of here's when we kind of see God moving in his life. While Knox was ordained as a priest, he was actually unable to find a church to serve. So Knox eventually started tutoring to bring an extra income. But it so happened that the kids' parents who he tutored were Protestants. And they were actually well-known Protestants in that time. He went on to tutor these kids from three, for four, three years. That's from the year 1540 to 1543. And by the end of 1543, Knox came to know the Lord and became a Christian. Most spectators, they give three possibilities of what means the Lord used to save Knox. One would have been uh, George, George Weishart. We'll kind of speak on more how they met shortly. The second option would have been Thomas Gillian. Uh, he was appointed by the Earl of Erin, who temporarily governed Scotland while Bloody Mary was still a baby at that point. And the, the third less common option would be the, the parents of the kids he tutored. I, I lean more towards that option because it was like you had three years of Protestant parents that you were meeting with their children regularly. The parents were probably in close proximity. So they had time to kind of just answer, not, uh, answer all John Knox's objections to, to Christianity. Um, he was a study priest, so I'm pretty sure he was well versed with um, the Catholic means to grace and that Catholic means of justification. So I'm pretty sure um, my opinion is that uh, that's how the gospel was implanted in Knox. 
And after spending a good amount of time studying God's word and seeing how much error the Catholic Church taught, Knox confessed that it, it pleased God to call me from the puddle of tapestry. Then Knox met George Wiseheart in 1545. Wiseheart was accused of heresy in Bristol in 1539, which led him to come to Scotland. Now, every now and then I'm just kind of pause and kind of, just kind of look and see how God was glorified through these little specific situations. Uh, had Wiseheart not been accused of heresy, right, he would have never came to Scotland, and he wouldn't have been able to influence Knox as he did. You know, one thing I love about church history is that you can see how God worked in the midst of chaotic situations. Now, let's kind of keep that in mind as we go into 2024, that Times were bad in the past as well. <clears throat> Just because they're bad now in the United States doesn't mean that God is still in control of the situation. So, so Wiseheart preached the gospel and Knox, like any new believer, he saw that Wiseheart was more knowledgeable than he was and more of a mature believer than himself. So Knox clung on to Wiseheart and became one of his disciples. It didn't take long for many people to hear Wiseheart's preaching and many people enjoyed it while others sent him death threats. So, so Knox volunteered to be Wiseheart's bodyguard. And as tension grew with the Catholics opposing the Protestant teaching, Wiseheart was arrested in December 1545. Knox tried to defend him, but uh, Wiseheart said, Return to your pupils, and God bless you. One is sufficient for one sacrifice. Wiseheart was later on martyred in 1546 at St. Andrew's Castle. But before Wiseheart, the first Scottish uh, martyr was Patrick Hamilton. He was martyred in 1528. So Wiseheart was the second Christian to be martyred because of Protestant teaching. Uh, the Archbishop David Beaton was the person who accused both of them of being heretics. You know, Catholicism at that time was the law of the land. Either you abide by the Catholic belief, or you're martyred. You know, Wiseheart's death was like the, the passing of a baton to Knox. During that year, Knox was decided by Wiseheart. He was able to grow in his understanding of, God, of God's word. And a, uh, a well-known Christian historian, William G. Blakey, in his book, Priests of Scotland, writes... The chief result of this murder was to substitute John Knox for George Wiseheart as the man of light and leading for the country. Wiseheart was to Knox as what Stephen had been to Paul. And shortly after, the very person who put Wiseheart to death was murdered in 1546. <coughs> this kind of encouraged the Protestants to take refuge in St. Andrews for the rest of the year. Knox went on and resumed his tutoring responsibilities, and he began a Bible study through John. And it didn't take long for everyone to recognize his ability to handle God's Word and his ability to teach. So, one day, a man by the name of John Ruff, while preaching a sermon, he publicly charged Knox before the congregation to answer the divine call to Knox's life. John Ruff believed that God called Knox to be a pastor. You know, just imagine, imagine, right? George is preaching a sermon and someone through me looks at you and says, you're supposed to preach. <laughs> you have to preach. 
And if you think you'd be emotional, right, and scared, Knox was too. As a result, he burst out in tears and he ran and hid in his, his room for a couple of days. I believe it's because Knox understood the severity of preaching God's word. Uh, Knox most likely understood James 3.1. Let's go ahead and turn it for a brief second. James chapter 3, verse 1. James writes, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. George just recently finished teaching through James. And here James is providing counsel with loving, with a loving warning. It's kind of like if you're getting ready to do something dangerous, right? Let's say bungee jumping. Uh, they'll kind of have you sign a waiver. Well, James here cares enough to explain why everyone shouldn't be teachers. But pastors who compare, who prepare sermons week in and week out should know better than those who don't. They give counsel very frequently, and if they didn't, they didn't practice what they preach, they'd be called hypocrite, right? Teachers are also in a position where people follow them. Paul tells his listeners, his, his readers, to imitate him as he imitates Christ. So if a pastor acts ungodly, it could cause some of the congregation to follow in his ungodly ways. Knox understood the magnitude of the task that was being presented to him. And just like all God's people, he, he panicked, he ran, he ran and fled. For so a couple days, Knox accepted the call, and he was installed as a pastor at St. Andrews. Uh, his very first sermon was from Daniel chapter 7, Verses 24 and 25. Where Daniel's vision was interpreted. Listen to verse 25. Scripture reads, He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, and he shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and laws. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and a time's half. Knox and the congregation were indeed being persecuted at that time. Uh, the point was to remind God's people that those who want to live a godly life will be persecuted. It's the affirmation that you're pleasing God. And in June 1547, Mary of Lorraine, she had the French attack the castle. After fighting for a while, Knox and the congregation eventually were captured. There were about 120 people in all that were captured and placed on a ship for 19 months. The Knox was chained to the ship with little food. Uh, there weren't any restrooms. You couldn't just go use the restroom when you wanted to. Uh, their restroom was underneath for their feet. So 120 people in close proximity with one another. Little food, poor conditions. It didn't take long for Knox's health to start declining. I'll pause briefly. Are there any, any questions so far? St. Andrew's uh, is Church Cathedral, or what's the name of it? Uh, it's called St. Andrew's Church. Church okay. Cathedral. So we, we left off on uh, describing the condition of the church, 
And in the midst of that, right, the Frenchmen, they tried to force Knox into Catholicism. They even went as far as to try to make him kiss a small Mary statue. Somehow, some way, Knox got it thrown overboard. And after that, his statement was, let our lady now save herself. You know, she's light enough, let her run out of swim. And as you can see, Knox wasn't only a great preacher, but he was also a comedian, right? Yeah, and in 1549, the new king of England, Edward VI, he negotiated for Knox to be released. It's my understanding that England was much more accepting of Protestants. In fact, they embraced it in the time period. So Edward does a prisoner exchange for Knox in early 1549. So now, in this time period, Knox was 35 years old. Now, Knox was a free man, but unfortunately, going back to Scotland wasn't an option just yet. The only thing that waited him there was death. So after prayer and consideration, Knox went to London, where he spent five years there preaching the gospel. Now he set out to reform the church in England. It didn't take long for others to recognize God's call on Knox's life. In 1549, Knox was installed as the pastor of Bewick Parish Church, which is literally just three miles from the Scottish border. The town was like any other, any other ungodly town where people needed the gospel. Even today, that remains true. What every ungodly culture needs is the gospel. A Christian should always be exhorted to spread the gospel in all places. I'm saying we should be encouraged to spread the gospel. Well, we shouldn't be trying to find ways to separate ourselves from others. That's why God placed you where you are to spread the gospel. Well, scripture calls us to be the light. Well, the only way you can be the light is if you're in a dark place. Right? And you shine bright and point people to Jesus. Now, Knox practiced expository preaching. They believed this was the best way to remain faithful to the text and to teach the congregation how to handle God's words. Things became a little bit more tedious in the year 1550. You see, Knox's ministry was mainly dedicated to exposing the heresies of the Catholic Church. And while he reached many people, a lot of them still held to the Catholic dogma. For they were Christians, but still kind of held some of the Catholic practices. And during the year 1550, Knox started to preach more regarding the idolatrous practice of mass. And so April of 1550, Knox was summoned to Newcastle to give a defense for the reformed doctrine he's been teaching. Listen to what part of his response was. He said, All worshiping, honoring, and service invented by the brain of man in the religion of God without his own express commandments is idolatry. Now, the Lord gave Knox favor in their, in their sight, and they let Knox go. And shortly after that, Knox met his soon-to-be wife. Marjorie and her mother Elizabeth came to know the Lord through Knox preaching. But they wouldn't get married until the year 1555. And so even though they were engaged, Knox still had to fulfill his calling to the Lord. So in 1551... Knox accepted the call to pastor St. Nicholas Church in Newcastle. People traveled from afar to his preaching. It's kind of like a celebrity preacher today. And he 
wouldn't be there long after Knox was selected to be the chaplain for King Edward VI. And Knox revised the book of the, the, um, the, An the Anglican Book of Prayer. I'll probably put out some excerpts for you guys next class on that. Let's go and take a step back to 1547. It's kind of just a little overview. Knox was a slave in 1547. Now in 1551, he's the chaplain to the king. Right? Isn't it always amazing to see how God works in the life of his people? As a royal chaplain, Knox had the opportunity to preach the gospel not only to the king, but also all those who were around him. The Knox had the privilege to preach at the, the Windsor Castle, the Hamilton Court, and the Westminster Abbey. And during this time, an issue concerned Knox, and that was the practice of kneeling at the communion. During the communion, they would kneel to it, and Knox looked at it as a form of idolatry, which I believe it was. In response to that, Thomas Cranmer, he inserted in the Common Book of Prayer that kneeling before the communion wasn't an act of worship. And Martin Lloyd-Jones called Knox the, the founder of Puritanism because of his unwavering desire to see the church in England rid itself of the idolatrous practices. In the years of 1552 and 1553, Knox popularly grew to an all-time high. He was nominated for the Bishop of Rochester, he turned it down. Uh, you know, a bishop oversees multiple churches, and Knox thought all the churches were too corrupt to be the office of a car or the bishop. You know, I biblically disagree with the idea of a bishop, at least how we view it today. It pertains to church government, specifically the, uh, the Catholics practice it, the Methodists practice it, the Episcopal Church practice it as well. And they, they believe uh, that a bishop or archbishop is supposed to oversee multiple churches. I think the, uh, the AME has a, a similar structure as well. I believe the New Testament teaches that churches ought to be self-governed. Uh, they choose their own elders and their own deacons and they make their own decisions. Not someone else kind of from another place dictating what that church is supposed to do. Now one reason is, you know, Christ is the head of the church. Two, Elder, pastor, and bishop, I believe, in the New Testament are all used interchangeably. Just listen to Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. Paul writes, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain. Paul tells Titus to appoint elders in Crete. Then he gives some of the qualifications, or called really characteristics, that an elder should have. And then notice in verse 7, he calls an elder an overseer. Well, the KJV translates overseer as bishop. And that's what many denominations get the word from today. So we can kind of see there how it's kind of used interchangeably. And also, right, we have to recognize that God used special means to start the church. He chose apostles to build the foundation of the church. The apostles preached the gospel. 
And then the people believe. And when you first become a believer, they had no knowledge of what a pastor is. Uh, there were no churches, so the apostles had to plant churches and raise up elders among the congregations. And when issues arose, those new churches, they sought out wisdom from the apostles. And thankfully, the, the foundation has already been laid. We already have the completed canon. So the means by which the Lord plants churches down has changed from then. So it wouldn't make sense to go and try to see that Titus planted churches or he appointed elders that we can kind of follow that same path. I think uh, Michael a while back uh, hit on this, but it's, it's, it's good to recognize, right, that we can have disagreement with church fathers. That doesn't mean that we don't credit Christianity, we just disagree on a specific issue. Like how we here at Cross Life Bible Fellowship, we disagree with Presbyterians. We don't believe in baptizing children. But we still believe that they're Christians. Also, um, John Knox was a Presbyterian, if you guys didn't know. I'm just going to finish through. Uh, King Edward VI, he reigned from 1547 to 1553. In the year of 1553, he died at 16 years old. Yes, he was a king at 10 years old to 16 years old. And after he died, Lady Jane Grey took his role for about nine days. Then the worst moment for Protestant history in England started when Edward's sister, Mary Tudor, became queen. She was a devout Catholic, and we nicknamed her Bloody Mary because of her persecution of the Christian saints. Her goal was to restore Catholicism in England. During Mary's five-year reign, she ordered over 300 Christians to be burned at the stake. Not only men, but women and children too. Unfortunately, today we remember her by naming a cocktail after her. It has tomato juice in it. I, I would never drink it. <laughs> but just to name a few theologians that we know of today that were burned at the stake were Thomas Cranmer, the guy I mentioned earlier that um, that revised the Common Book of Prayer and said uh, kneeling at the communion wasn't wasn't idolatry. They weren't worshiping it. John Rogers, Hugh Lattimore, Nicholas Ridley. Under Queen Mary, either you participated in Mass or you died. And there was no refusal. Knox would continue to preach there for about a year, and then Knox left England and went to France here in 1554. So Knox, of course, felt guilty about fleeing, and to the matter, he wrote, I have in the beginning of this battle appeared to play a faint-hearted and feeble soldier. The cause I went to God uh-huh. <laughs> Yet my prayer is that I may be restored to battle again. But it's, it's interesting that Knox is going back to the very place that he fleed from, right? It didn't take long for Knox to write something regarding to the wickedness going on in England. So Knox wrote a small piece called The Admonition to England. And Knox called England to repent of his wickedness, and he, de- and he declared Mary to be more wicked than Jezebel. Under normal circumstances, you know, we are called to submit to our government. But whenever the government tells us to sin against God, we must obey God and not man. If the government tells us that we have to participate in mass, we must refuse. 